Welcome to How Science Happens, a podcast by Wally Paxton, DJ So, and Doug Tree, professors at Brigham Young University. In the podcast, we bring you stories of cutting-edge science as told by world-class scientists and engineers from around the world who are on the front lines doing the work. We explore the highs and lows of discovery and what makes science such an exhilarating and frustrating process for those who do it. And because we're nerds, maybe we'll even learn a little science along the way. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of How Science Happens. My name is Doug Tree, and my ho- uh, co-host today is uh, DJ So. Hey, everyone. So uh, today we're excited to have uh, Sean Paradiso, who's uh, VP of Platform Engineering at Citrine Informatics. He's going to tell us more about that company. Um, but Citrine is in uh, the materials informatics uh, space, um, and they're a startup in the Bay Area. Um, uh, at least uh, centrally, uh, that's their central location, I think. Um, and so we're excited to have Sean on today. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. So uh, before we uh, dive in too deep, let me tell you a little bit about Sean. Um, so he has a bachelor's in chemical engineering from uh, UMass Amherst. I think it was 2010, if I read that right on his uh, on his uh, resume. He did a PhD at uh, UC Santa Barbara, which is where I met him. Um, in the lab of Glenn Fredrickson. He was there until 2015, I think, when he left. Um, and then he started a job at uh, Citrine, where he worked his way from uh, software engineering up, and now he's uh, the head of platform engineering there. So thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today, Sean. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, so I was excited to have you on today. I think you have a, a, a super interesting uh, sort of career path, and then I think what you're doing is really cool. So I I, I thought it would be really fun to hear about. Um, but so as, as we've talked, and and as our listeners uh, hopefully know, we like to sort of rewind and go back. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, about how you got interested in science and engineering in the first place? Maybe as a kid or in high school, like what what turned you on to to the sort of technical uh, career path? Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of folks in my family are technical. I come from somewhat of an academic background, um, you know, a few professors, um, but no like professor in physics, you know, it's not, not like that. Um, but my, my grandfather is a bit of a polymath and he was sort of the classic, I think everyone, a lot of people have this figure in their family that they sort of kind of pull them along. Um, and my grandfather was definitely one of, one of those. Um, he was, he was the one who was going to wax poetic about Einstein and Brownian motion and how peculiar, you know, some of these and lovely some of these things are to a six-year-old that has no idea what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> You're like, could you just pass the crayon, Grandpa? <laughs> uh, but he, you know, they cultivate that sensitivity, right? And that, that sort of yes. awe and interest far beyond, you know, before you have any uh, idea what to do with it. Um, and so, you know, that kind of that kind of sets you on the path. Um I, I found it lovely in principle before I ever knew enough to, to really kind of understand what was lovely about it. Um, and so it was almost like a foregone conclusion. Um, I remember when I was in high school throughout that, that whole time, you know, the classic, you read popular science books, you read everyone bumps into Feynman at some point and gets like really yep. excited about, you know, the romance of uh, being a genius at a great point in history, right? To do it happened, you know, all these stars aligned, right? And you're like, right. wow, what a wonderful, beautiful, romantic life one could lead uh, pursuing discovery. Um, and so, yeah, that was basically why I had chose chemical and or chemistry. And then, of course, my parents uh, asked about sort of my practical plan. And so I tacked engineering on the other side of it. So fortunately, chemical engineering is just a nice portmanteau of something interesting and practical. Um, and that's, that's, you know, as arbitrary as that, that's kind of how, how, how it happened. So I'm just curious, is there any of your siblings or your uh, the cousins fell into your father's uh, grandfather's skin? <laughs> Did anyone follow your past? No, um, they didn't. And I actually, yeah, I think a lot about this because... Um, as as a, a new father, um, mm-hmm. I worry a lot that I actually, and I, I wonder if Doug, if, if anyone else has had this experience, where you worry that you've, uh, you know, you you occupied too much volume, 
you know, narrative volume in that space. I was the one interested in physical science, and I almost feel like I crowded out my siblings who were incredibly sharp and could easily, or I think, have had a very happy and productive time there. Um, but no, it's just me. Okay. Yeah, for, for, for me, I've had, my, my grandpa actually was really pretty influential too, uh, but then we've had a bunch of engineers. So all my, mm. all my brothers are mechanical engineers, and then I'm that chemical engineer. So they like make fun of me, you know, like, oh, you, you know, chemical engineers think they're all that. And, well, you know, it's not my fault if you guys feel <laughs> inferior all the time. No, anyway, now they're going to listen to this and make fun of me all Christmas. Just kidding. I know they won't listen. So anyway, uh, so, so that's interesting. So I, one of the things that you said that, that resonates with me too, is I think a lot of people that we've talked to as they get interested in chemical engineering in particular, they sort of go, I like chemistry. This is interesting, but I'm trying to imagine a future. And my parents say, like, if I put engineering at the end, everybody's like, oh, that's smart. Oh, yeah, that's a really, you know, bright <laughs> thing to do. But you're not really necessarily sure yet, like, what that means for your career, right? Or, like, why that was smart. Um, so talk a little bit to, so we were talking a little bit in the, uh, you know, beforehand, uh, and you're telling us a little bit about programming. So tell mm. us a little bit about um, when you learned about programming and, and how that kind of fits in here. Yeah. So this, this, I find just fascinating, you know, rolling back in your own sort of narrative and history. So I, again, like a lot of people grew up, you know, I got my first computer when I was 12. Um, my dad was actually a programmer. And so he taught me how to program. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Well, he, what was the first language you learned? Oh, great question. Uh, it was Java, right? Yes. Java. It okay. was Java. Yeah. Yeah, you was a first time for me. <laughs> there you go. I'm an old time. You poor, you poor soul. Yeah. Um, yeah, Java than PHP. Um, but you know, it, that was a time when you're like playing around with with um, was that logo, right? So to mm -hmm. roll back a little bit, right? This you know the little turtle turtle art game. Um, a lot of ASCII art, you know, programmatic ASCII yep. art. So when you run yep. into cellular automata, you know there are a lot of these little like my grandfather's really big in, in the Stephen Wolfram. So, um, and what's so wonderful about that, especially as a curious young person with a lot of time in your hands is you don't need anything else, right? You can just sit there and run, you know, think mm. about it, run your head into a wall. And, you know, at a time when you're, you're largely disenfranchised right, as a 12 year old, um, it's really empowering. Um, and I think that's something that I've always, you, know, you think about theory versus experiment. You know, people are often drawn to theory, I think, because you can sit down, bound the problem and get pretty clear answers. You could do it on your time scale. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I used to joke with an experimentalist that I was friends with in grad school. You know, uh, diffusivity is an arbitrary rescaling. He's like, diffusivity is the difference between a day or three months of experimental. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're like, ah, that's why we have dimensional analysis. I don't know what exactly. your problem is, experimentalists. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> So anyway, but yeah, so programming has always been, um, it's aesthetically pleasing. It's very self-gratifying. It's something that's always just sort of a really fun toolkit um, to go back yeah. to. And that's really, um, yeah, it's been important to me for a long time. It's sort of my, my, my comfort zone. Um, I actually did a small uh, foray into, yeah, I thought it was going to be in chemistry, right? Chemical engineering. So I did a lot of synthetic chemistry uh, in undergrad. And, you know, I find myself doing... Uh, focusing, doing a lot of time on data analysis, doing a lot of yep. fancy data visualizations, do a lot, trying to automate a lot of my workflow. I did a lot of lab view, you know, and you sort of find yourself yeah. sort of pulled. And yes. You're like, you know what? And then I ended up, as you know, of course, in, in polymer physics, but uh, comp purely computational um, in grad school. Yeah. So, so you said two things I thought were really interesting. The 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 one you said there was. Uh, resonated with me too. So I also did programming as in high school and then joined an experimental lab as an undergrad and found myself like wanting to, to like do the theory and the, you know, the programming of stuff and being like, we're not doing enough of that, you know? And, the, and, and so now I see it right at the time. I just thought like it was, Oh, I have an idea, you know, but now I look back and go, Oh, that was why, I, you know, I'm interested in this direction. Right. The, the other thing you said, which I thought was really fascinating, was kind of about how, um, as a young person, you could tinker, right, with programming and how that sort of, that, like, and I was thinking, you know, we, we it's really hard these, you know, in our current culture to, like, tinker 
with like chemicals, right? That's not like parents don't usually go, Hey, like here's some solvents and some like flames and stuff. And like, just go tinker in the garage, right? Like that's not, that's not really encouraged. So chemistry, like it's hard to have been someone who like was a natural chemist as a 13 year old. Like usually those guys end up in jail, you know? <laughs> anyway, but I, so I just thought that was a, it was interesting to, because it, it is a thing that you can find and then do right. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, especially in, in hardware, that story is changing a little bit, not in yes. the chemistry, but of course, you know, this like Arduino, 3D, 3D printing, yes. 3D printing, um, which yes. I just find, man, can you imagine growing up today? Like you better believe my kids going to have a 3D printer and a bunch of, you know, unused uh, arm chips or whatever lying around or whatever they mm -hmm. are. Yeah, totally. So, okay. So, so you found yourself in chemical engineering, you were, you know, playing around in some wet labs, trying to figure out what you liked. So you end up, uh, so, so why'd you, why'd you go do a PhD? Did you just wanted to get out of, uh, Western Massachusetts and go to California. What was, what was driving the, driving the PhD decision? Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> I, my brain has been broken by studying optimization and spending a lot of time doing sort of search and optimization. So I see literally everything in terms of sort of exploitation versus exploration now. Um, and at the time, not in that language, but of course it was very much, um, I think the, the, the visual metaphor I had was uh, being on a train. You know, how long do you stay on the train versus sort of getting off and saying like, all right, what can I do here, right? And at that point, right, I was just at the end of my undergrad. I had taken that four year train and I sort of peeked out the window. I did a bunch of, uh, you know, interviews with a bunch of companies talking about like, all right, practically, what does this look like? Um, mm -hmm. And it was, it was not obvious that I would enjoy any of the things that I connected with. Uh, and that was about, you know, four or five interviews in with different companies. And so I thought um, I probably want to duck back. Just practically speaking, I probably want to duck back in. I'm still looking. Um, I could use five more years of thinking about this. Mm. You know, honestly, like that's kind of where, where my head was at. And I think it's for a lot of people, right? People joke, you know, I'm not sure what to do yet. So I'm going to stay in school. Um, mm -hmm. But there are actually like worse things you can do with your life. Mm, uh, right. You know, like you, just, just hanging out, right? Like not right. Like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I, I like that thought, though. I, I think that's really interesting, too, that you talk about uh, exploration versus uh, exploitation. So you, you basically paused, did a, did an explore step and were like, eh, not not ready to, like, exploit the opportunities at this stage here. We're going to go on. It's got to be right? a better that's base. That, that, that's yeah. You're like, I'm going to look for a different a different, you know, minima per, to, to look through. Uh, that's interesting. So one question I have here is. When I take a look at your resume and your paper, it seems like you're more like, I mean, to me, you are more, more, more like a computer scientist rather mm -hmm. than chemical engineer to me. But I, I'm wondering why you didn't choose to go to purely computer science or something more related to human vision. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to stay inside the chemical engineering? You can, but you can also go to mechanical engineering to the computer science, but why did you stay in the chemical engineering? Yeah. Um, I, I hope that I can be the voice of, of the many people out there who feel like they just make completely arbitrary decisions and worry that everyone else has a great strategic purpose to their life. I'm going to give you another complete arbitrary fork, which was mm -hmm. that um, I was going to actually major in computer science in high oh, school. Okay. Turns out, roll back the clock, uh, you know, everyone says there's no like right answer and just follow your passion. It turns out there was a right answer and it was major in computer science in 2006. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was a good, but, but the two thousands hadn't really told you that, right. You know, it wasn't so obvious. Exactly. And in fact, it was in the wake of some of that, I think. Um, yeah, my mom, my, my parents actually really pretty concretely steered me away from it. They were like, they're going to outsource all the job, you know, you might be able to infer I grew up not, uh, super economically stable. Um, and a lot of those conversations focused on, yes, but what are you going to do? Um, right. And so in this case, it was very concretely, which is hilarious if you think of, you know, the way history is sort of unfold. Uh, anyway, you know, your economic opportunities had you majored in computer science in 2006 are, are solid today. Um, 
But yeah, that was why. That was why. Steered away. It was all going to outsourced. So, so, okay. So then you end up at, so, so that's super interesting. So you're like, okay, you know, you end up in, in Santa Barbara and did, did you know then like, I want to work in, in simulations and do programming or, or was that, did those projects just pop to you, you know, or was it like, was it your advisor? Mm -hmm. Was it Glenn that, you know, that you ended up connecting with? Like, how was it that you ended up on your project you did? Yeah. I, so in that sense, I was actually pretty focused. So I had reached out to Glenn um, when I was still at, at, at UMass as an undergrad. I did my undergrad thesis in basically Monte Carlo methods. Um, and, you know, he his work just came up a lot. I really admired the work that they did. It felt like, you know, and I, I think this really holds true. This is one of the, probably one of the few examples of my stumbling into the right conclusion um, when you know, trying to put two and two together uh, in undergrad. And it's just very clear. You read the papers. Glenn is there to, you know, focus on the right problems and, and do good work, right? You pick up a paper from Glenn, it's good work. You know, it's not. Um, and that is really attractive to me, you know, especially thinking about going long, investing in yourself for five years, right? This was not going to be throw a couple papers together. You know, this is going to be a career accelerant and I know exactly where I'm going, but um, I'm going to learn how to do good work. Mm. Yeah. So you, you had some, you had some wisdom that you picked up there uh, and made a good choice, I think. Cause I, I totally agree that that's how I, I mean, I'm biased, right? We both worked for him, but, but uh, he's very much like do the right thing on the problem and solve it the right way. And, and yeah, that was, uh, that's awesome. Okay, so then you you do you do polymer physics for five years. You crank through a bunch of field theory and simulations, and I know the story a little bit because I was around you. So you you started to get into um, some optimization problems. Your your project threw you at that. So so was that really the catalyst that got you back thinking about programming? You know, in in a real way, or or was something else sort of under the surface mm. driving it? So, yes. So those in sort of inverse design. So at, at that time, around sort of 2014, inverse design, computational inverse design started to become really fashionable. There was a lot of, yeah, sort of, um, uh, you know, stochastic uh, approximate uh, inverse problems um, coming out. Well, and, and some, of, some of this was driven by the, the Obama administration had a... a it had a materials genome initiative, right? And so there was some money in the space and it, it started to become the, the kind of hot item in material science. That, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and so there are a couple of things that happened there. One, actually, that, that um, I don't know, some synapse connect, some, some neurons connected. And programming to me had always been fun. Um, it, mm -hmm. it, oddly enough, when you actually have a job to do, it becomes uh, much less important. Right. I didn't spend a lot of time on my code. You know, I most interesting because I had done a lot of programming earlier. Maybe you experienced the same. I didn't really over up. I didn't get too fancy um, and I didn't get distracted by that um, in grad school. Um, so it was always sort of a fun thing you do. It's a side project thing was programming. And the the interest in, in, in sort of inverse problems and especially Companies like your Intel's, your Samsung's, you recognize the amount, how important computational design was today and is only going to get more important, right? Um, that really connected with me was like, this is a, this is an opportunity. This is, I, now I, I sort of start to see maybe where this is going and I feel very comfortable in my ability to, to, to slide into that, right? So I kind of saw a jet stream and felt like I, it made just obvious sense to jump in, um, and and I did. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, go ahead. DJ, yeah, please. I cannot believe that programming can be fun for you guys because programming is <laughs> fun for me only if it works. <laughs> I, I, I just, I think it's, I don't, it's kind of like puzzle solving to me. It's like you're, you know, yeah, like but you're... for me, it is impossible puzzle. That's the reason why I did do. Yeah, it's an impossible puzzle. Yeah. I, I can see that. So I think what happens is it's like a language. You have to get a fluency with yes. it mm -hmm. to the point where you're not uncomfortable, right? So I've, you know, I'm a bad enough 
at at speaking a second language that I can recognize the 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 difficulty expressing yourself, right? But once you reach a certain level of fluency, you can you know. And then sometimes you learn new tricks. So you're like, oh, I want to try out this vocabulary word, right? And you you try it and you're like that wasn't really the right place to use that. But you add it to your yeah. bag, right? You know, uh, like I remember learning with Sean. Actually, he taught me a lot about the the factory design sort of model in with classes and. And I remember I, I just hadn't experienced that before. And I use it all the time now. I'm like, oh, that's such, that was so, that was so nice. I'm glad, you know, that I got to learn that. Anyway, so there's lots of things like that. I think that once you have these, these tricks, right, you just, you get to apply them in lots of places, right? So anyway, I, I'm talking too much, but. Um, I think it's really sharp, by the way. I, I, I really agree. You know, when you when you learn a new language and you get to a point where you, you sort of try out a play on words in your second language, and it's like, that's fun, right? Before it's work. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. Right. I think that's really true. Yeah. So it's basically going to, like, a, going to Paris. If you know French, it's a fun to go to Paris. If you don't know anything, I mean, it's kind of hard. You don't enjoy it. And you, you enjoy it. You enjoy the croissants, but, you know, like, the French people aren't as fun. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. So, okay. So then, so let's, so talk to us a little bit about Citrine. So where did they come into the mix? So you see these opportunities You're like, oh, I see computational design is going to be a big deal. Um, so how did you get connected with this particular company? Yeah. Um, so now I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears into, uh, I don't know, faux, uh, wisdom mode. Um, cause I, I actually think there's a, there is a lesson here, uh, you know, if I went back in time to to my own sort of grad school self, um, I would I would reinforce uh, this really strongly, which is you everything is about bootstrapping. Everything is like the whole game. There's so many problems that come down to how do you get to the next step and like connect a couple steps together. Um, there, you know, you're not going to get a job at Google uh, out of you know your PhD probably. Probably, maybe, like there are people that do that, um, but typically you get there's something that you're really differentiated in, and that's your in. And it's actually not 80% of the job, it's like 20% of the job, or maybe 10% that they're really focused on. Um, and yeah, for me, I recognized that Citrine was going to be, so first of all, Citrine gave a talk at UCSB, that's how I was connected with them. Oh, okay. um, and it was immediately obvious two things. Um, this was the right time to build this business, right? You, you heard all the chatter on MGI. They were pretty early, right, to, to getting yeah. into it. They started around 2013, the company was started. So they were, you know, startup at the right time. So what do you hear about startups? Timing. Um, yep. It's about 95% of, of the thing. Um, so that makes me curious about what Citrine's is about, because what, what do they do? Oh, sure. Um, so Citrine sells... Um, enterprise uh, software for basically doing, I mean, it's, it's a materials informatics platform. I mean, the, the product itself is meant to be a substrate for building informatics-based analyses and, and, um, and applications. We have a flagship application uh, on top of that, which is basically uh, design of experiments. Uh, we call it sequential learning. It's basically uh, an iterative okay, okay. Yeah, learning product. If you're familiar with Bayesian optimization, um, or any sort of global optimization routine. Um, there's sort of a packaged workflow for that on, on the platform. So, ba so basically it's a way where you put in your data, right? You use it for, for that. And then it helps you uh, understand to, you know, do a design of experiments about where you should go next, how to optimize, you know, how to minimize the amount of cost f that you're doing for your experiments to get back the things you want to know, right? So, okay. So you're, so you were, so you're telling us, okay, so Citrine comes to Santa Barbara, you hear the talk, you go, this is the right time for this company. They're in the right place. Like what, what happens? You go up to the CEO and tackle him. Like, what did you, you know, what did you do? Yeah, basically. Um, I, I cold emailed him. So it was Bryce Meredith, who's the, the CEO at the time. Um, he gave a, a stellar talk and yeah, I cold emailed him and basically just laid out my case. Um, you know, I think soft materials are going to be a really, you know, a, a big industry for you. Um, formulations, um, 
that's interesting. That has become about 70 something percent of the informatics market. We can get there later. That was, you know, absolutely true. Although it took a, a, a while to get there. Um, and, and said, yeah, basically this is why you want me now. And this is why you'll want me later. Um, and I was very, I was convinced that that was, I needed to get that job. Like that was, it was so obvious to me that that was the right place to be. Um, that I, yeah, I spent a long time on that email. Um, and, and, you know, bless him. He, uh, yeah, he reached out, actually drove up five and a half hours to meet them for an hour at uh, (laughs) a taco place and then drove back. Um, And that was, that was it. Yes. But at this time they were just what, like a handful of people, were they five or 10 folks that were working there? They were six, six people. No, five. Yeah, that's right. Three founders. And then, okay. Yeah. So you were six. I was six. Um, There you go. Yeah. And how, how, how big is the company now? There were about a hundred. Okay. So you saw the future. You saw the future very well. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it, yeah, I don't know what to say. (laughs) It's like, I'm amazing. I'm amazing. Um, What are you going to tell me? You know, I don't know if it was quite, if it was, if you got lucky, right. uh, You know, broken clock sort of argument, um, or if everybody saw it and, and I, you know, happened to just sort of get a, a seat. Um, but yeah, it was very clear. I think at that. Time. I mean, I f- from for, so from someone who watched, yeah. you know, I I was around. I was a postdoc in the group at this time, and I, I watched this process. I remember you driving up and talking to them and coming back and having conversations about it. And what I remember about it was thinking that it was a it was a hand and glove kind of fit, right? Like yeah. I I don't remember if I was at the talk by Citrine, but I remember you telling me about it, and I was like, but like. I don't know if you if you could have designed a path to make you more interesting to them, right? Like they had people that were on doing materials, but they didn't have a soft materials person. They needed people who were competent at programming and doing the software. And you're one of the best programmers of the PhD students I've ever met, right? Like you were really, you're highly competent at that. And so I just remember thinking like, this is like an obvious thing. Like they should totally hire him. And then they did. And it was, it was brilliant. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It was lucky though. And I actually, I want to emphasize we early stage startups like this, like this is just history took a really fortunate branch. This is lovely. If that didn't happen, it would have been something else, you know? Um, but this was, this was just, this was luck. Um, there are a lot of amazing people that, that came in to Citrine again, really early. They're extremely conservative in hiring. Um, and you know, we weren't able to connect with a ton of people that were probably way better than, than me or most of us at the time. It just wasn't quite the right time. Um, and they're all doing great. So that's the other thing. Like if I wouldn't, you know, you're at risk of overthinking it. Like I was really anchored on, on Citrine and I agree it was a really good fit. Um, but I also want to remember that there's a lot, as long as you can, you know, know it when you see it, um, and, mm-hmm. you know, take good swings, um, but don't, don't make yourself crazy either. So I want to, I want to kind of circle a, around a little bit. So now you're in a position where you're in, in leadership at Citrine and you're on the other side, you're hiring folks, right? So we're talking about your experience getting hired. Um, and so I want to kind of hear your take on, I guess, kind of two things on this, um, pick, pick both or one or whatever you think. But one is um, sort of uh, what's your advice to PhDs as they're looking in this process, right? Because you see, you know, uh, uh, you know, the other side of it. And, and then the second thing is sort of, um, you know, what do you think about this, this, just this process in general of a PhD graduating, looking for a job? I know there's a lot of anxiety sort of about that. Like, because I think a lot of people think, oh, I, you know, in your case, I did polymer physics. My job must needs be doing what I did in my PhD project for whatever, you know, mythical company out there that does that. And and they, they don't always see what maybe their skills are marketable. So anyway, so something is sort of about that, about how you see hiring and 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 what skills, you know, you think matter sort of out of mm-hmm. out of that. Sure. Yeah. So. <clears throat> I, at, at Citrine, I've been, you know, I've designed interview processes. I've interviewed people for, you know, 
research engineering positions, applied science positions, um, someone actually doing sort of applied science research, uh, software engineers, both junior and senior software engineers, and software engineering managers. And one of the things I've actually become, I've gotten on, on my soapbox a little bit um, at Citrine um, and actually a little outside around how valuable uh, PhD students really are. There's a meme um, in the industry, right, around, you know, PhDs, people have spent too much time in research, right? They don't, not enough, you know, real world experience, right? And that, you know, what is the PhD experience? Like, what is that work experience? Right. And, um, and it is incredibly important. So when I look at sort of the, um, when you go to interview, when you're building an interview process, right? You're thinking about what is the skill distribution I'm trying to fill, right? And you're, you're basically doing yes. matches there. And there's a, a part of that distribution. When you're hiring a principal level engineer, someone with 10, 15 years of experience, that's about the time where you start to get, you know, can bring clarity to a really ambiguous and vague prompt, right? They can get lost and just find themselves again, right? These, all of these sort of, these, <laughs> these experiences that you really don't get if you go straight into industry because you are given right. guidance, tasks tiny tasks that you can kind of like build up and so it actually takes you about three to five years to have the experience and the trust the institutional trust to get lost because it turns out your time is valuable at that point and as a phd student right. your time is not valuable <laughs> and you, were given, you, know, you can wander you can wander right. and no one gives you any you know um concerns about that and that is actually extreme that's an extremely privileged position and you should not undervalue that um, so, so, so let me, let me, let me put a pin in that. Cause I sure. think that's, that's super interesting. Basically what you're saying is that you get a job out of a bachelor's degree, they're paying you, they want tasks done. So even though you get experience doing that, there, there's a sort of amount of ability to like the problem solve and to do other things that, that you don't get to have experience doing because you're not, because you're too valuable to do that. Whereas as a PhD student, you're allowed to diffuse around and try things and, and, and get lost and, and uncover problems. And that, that different set of experience is actually really valuable for, for what you can do later. Is that, is that a fair characterization? What you said? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and I think what it emphasizes that it's, it is a part of the skill distribution that's really hard to access. Right. Mm. And so what, um, you know, I've used to say is, you know, I love hiring, people out of their PhDs or with PhDs because it is so much easier to teach them the basic skills, the basic software engineering skills. I, we know how to teach people how to program. We know how to teach people to work well with other people, to work well in a team. These are things that straight out of grad school, you actually really struggle with. People really struggle with, but it takes about a year. And after a year, you now effectively have a staff level engineer uh, that, you know, so you, you basically, it's like an accelerant, like, so someone else was, it took them 15 years or 10 years to get to that point, but you take the PhD and they maybe took five years to do that, but then they add a year on top of it. So maybe in, you know, cut maybe as much as 50%, maybe you know, 30 to 50% of the time to train. And they're, they're there, they're at that, they're at that point. That's super valuable. Um. And there's no question, you know, you look at, at Citrine internally, you know, this team of, of research engineers is recognized broadly at the company as some of the sharpest, highest performing, uh, you know, folks at the company. And part of that is because they have a lot of context and domain expertise. Um, but I, I truly think, you know, there are examples where we've thrown them on garden variety backend software engineering, um, and they've picked up, ran with it, um, in, in a way that you would expect from an L4, L5 engineer. Um, these people with two to three years of work experience, um, they punch way above their weight. Interesting. That's really interesting. So I want to, I want to, we, we only have maybe, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes left, maybe five minutes left to, to talk. I don't want to go too long and take too much of your time, but, um, but I wanted to hear a little bit about the technical details a little bit. So, so we, we talked about informatics and other things, but I want to hear a little bit about, um, in particular, uh, uh, how machine learning and, and this other stuff that you're doing at Citrine specifically matters for materials as opposed to, 
you know, some of the other things. So I think most of us, when at least when I think of machine learning, I think of like Netflix, where it's recommending the next Marvel video. And you're like, oh, that was genius. I watched the last two. You know, you want to give me that next one? Or when it, you know, Amazon at the bottom where it's recommending new products or, you know, and when I think about the cool upcoming things, I'm, I, you think about self-driving cars and that sort of, but so what is it, what's, what does it matter for materials companies? Or as you said, companies with formulations and soft materials, like what, what are they doing and, and sort of what are the unique challenges there? I think one of the things, so um, I think you had, you had mentioned earlier something about AlphaGo or AlphaFold. Um, and I think yeah, that was in my notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the, I think that is a really good place for someone trying to sort of find their you know look that maybe has a bit of a skeptical eye and they're trying to find the substance behind some of the the machine learning hype. Um, I would really I would look at at Mu Zero, which is one of their iterations, um, and it really represents sort of the kernel. I think a really a key insight. Um, which is first and foremost that machine learning is it is a workflow and sort of engineering phenomenon and, and what I mean by that so, is so, yeah so explain that a little more um, it so machine learning and like an AI workflow is saying I have I have a data stream I can monitor and I'm going to constantly and continuously uh, learn from that data stream to constantly adjust right so online learning I think is pretty central to a lot of these. Um, you need to have a lot of a lot of data, a lot of observational data for for a lot of the analysis they do. And so the, the basic idea was, you know, it's regression, but it's regression with the tooling around it, the the infrastructure around it to be able to run continuously, um, to adapt over time in a way that you can't realistically hand tune, right? Because you don't know the rate at which the data distributions are changing. You this you're able to adapt at a level and a scale. That you, you just couldn't do manually. Um, so let, let me let me let me see if I can kind of process what you're saying there. So so you're saying like we we think of machine learning as this like technology, and and you're saying that's a little bit wrong. The way to think about it is like um, it's more of a mindset or a, a, a workflow, as as you say. Like it's a, a you say I've got all this data coming at me already. And if I take, if I can take that data and use it to sort of iteratively improve, right? Like if I can, if I can learn from it and get better, and then it's a, it's, then it's the question of, well, what are the algorithms to, to do that effectively, right? And where you take old algorithms we used to know, like linear regression, but you're sort of amping them up by applying them to big things continuously and iteratively. Is that fair to say? Um, yes. And there's a second component to this, which is really, so the, the first piece is to be able to basically do function approximation uh, pretty flexibly um, and in, you know, dynamically and in, in, in real time and, and adjust that over time, right? Okay. The second piece is search, right? So the sort of central innovation of Mu Zero was basically two things. They recognize, so there's sort of a standard solution to, um, uh, you know, about like heuristic based um you know, like chess AIs, basically, right? Where they're saying, here's an enumeration of all that. It turns out the full enumeration of how this could go if I make this move and then you could make any one of these moves and then there's an exponential explosion. So the key insight is basically, well, can I learn an approximate value function, right? That can help me do more efficient search. I can't enumerate all the options. So can I prune the options early with this? And then with that in mind, can I then train a better model through experience to do that. And it's those two things in concert, uncertainty aware, potentially, um, prediction ability to, to build basically response services, right? To, to, to learn models of your system that can be wrong and you should assume are wrong, but then you use to power some kind of search, search procedure. And then you do that iteratively. So at Citrine, the classic example is what is the best, you know, are there can't material candidates out there either off the shelf that exists or, you know, new formulations that might plausibly meet your, your requirements. Um, we are not going to tell you exactly, you know, you, you know, we'll give you predictions, hopefully whose realizations landed within their error bars, um, because we do predict sort of full distributions, uncertainties, a first class citizen, uh, in our infrastructure, 
But on the other hand, what we really want to give you is just your best at bat. It's sort of the needle in the haystack problem. You can't enumerate all the different formulations you could make if you've got right. 90 ingredients. Right. <laughs> right. So like, let, let me let me like pull this to like an example. So like, suppose just to pick a random one, I have no idea if you guys work with them, but like, suppose you're like Procter and Gamble and you're trying to make like the next best washing machine soap, right? To take out whatever, whatever stains. And you've got, you know already, because you're Procter and Gamble, like 50 things that you put in there. There's this enzyme here. There's this surfactant here. There's this, 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 right? And you've had people doing this forever, right? But the question is like, and you can do a lot of experiments, but you go, what, what should we try next, right? And so the idea then is that, um, Oh yeah. So, so maybe, so from there, like explain to me a little bit, you know, like back to where you were, cause you started going like a little bit in the weeds on this and I got a little lost. So, so maybe with that as an example, help me. So pull me back in. Right. So, so Procter and Gamble is sitting there. Um, they realized that actually either some regulations have come in, um, such that mm. their existing formulations, although they right. express the properties they want, they're no longer able to use certain ingredients. So now what they're trying to find is now they got a different design space or search space, and they want to quickly screen through that, right? Maybe based on the signal they captured from uh, the experiments that they have done, that they say they know a formulation exists, right? Um, and so they're going to go, they'll, they'll we'll surface a number of candidate formulations. They'll be able to look at them. They'll synthesize them. They'll run them in the lab. They'll spray them, whatever, um, and then re-ingest that data, right? So I've made an observation. It worked. It didn't work. You can train, retrain the models, screen again. Um, and the key here is really that iteration, I think, to your point, um, and the ability to screen, to search through this huge space. Right, right. Because right. now, now there's like, if you had these 50 things you could potentially put in there, you know, that's more experiments than you could ever do. You don't have enough engineers, like it's expensive. So the idea is this algorithm then, you know, spits out, it says, look, this is the path to try next. Like these things are the most promising candidates. You put those in, you iterate again, right? It gets you to the next and to the next and to the next. Is that, that's fair, right? Okay. So, okay. So then, so so what makes this different then, or, or what are the sort of, you know, I guess kind of coming back to my earlier question, what are the unique challenges then about this relative to other kinds of machine learning applications? Yeah. So um, I, we, we obviously operate in a very different regime from Netflix. They're, it's a rare materials problem that has, uh, you know, tens of millions of observations associated with it. Um, and so there's obviously the small, small data problem. Um, Yes. You know, you will often work on problems where they've got like 30 or 50 observations. And the question is, right. okay, how do you then, the most sample efficient way, ask basically two questions. Uh, first of all, is there any reason to believe, based on the data we have, that there is a solution out here? And this is actually one of the really nice use cases, I think, is to say, yeah, actually, there's enough uncertainty in some of these models, right, that... Yeah, there are a bunch of pockets where maybe you should look. We've worked with customers, we've iterated a number of times, and after three or four iterations, we've basically collapsed a lot of those pockets and said, listen, the likelihood, you, there always could be something hidden there, right? That, right. you know, you've just, this, the some, different physics. Some interaction right? that you just don't know, right. We're not going to discover new physics that has no representation in the data, right? Of course, there's always that problem, and that's why you still need human experts. Um, you know, we've always sort of promoted this centaur chess model, right? Where you always have a human expert there using these tools. Um, but, um, yeah, you're, you're always going to need that. Yeah. So, so you've, you have, you have small data, right? So like, and it's expensive, so you can't just throw up, you know, 10 million things at it. Um, I also, in the, in the papers you sent us, there's a question of sort of interpolation versus extrapolation too, right? So in like the Netflix set, right? Like you're, you know, you can go back and see a thousand other people that watched that movie also watch this next movie. Whereas in this case, you're looking for like something that you haven't potentially yet found, right? Like you're looking outside of the data set to see what else is out there. Right. Because specifically the problem statement puts you in a regime that's really challenging. You are trying to extrapolate typically in response. Um, now you should be very skeptical of anyone who says like, you know, I have a model and I'm going to extrapolate outside of my domain, mm -hmm. right? Because you just have no signal outside of the domain. 
right? So there's actually, you know, one of the central problems of machine learning is, is representation or few what they call featureization, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the game in chemistry is a good example of this, actually. You have um, the reason you can make predictions, quality predictions on new chemistries is that, you know, you can featureize, you can understand uh, some of these systems in a way that when you featureize them, actually your prediction is, is on the interior of the hull of your training data. Um, and that's, that's sort of the hidden, you know, the one, one neat trick of, of the industry. Um, so featureization is key. So, so basically that would mean representing the data in a way such that, that the things you care about are in there. So if it's in chemistry, maybe it's, you've included the right chemistries, even though it, you know, that are sort of going to add up right to, to giving you that feature set and, and you have to represent the data in a way that that, that the model can learn on that as opposed to a different way where it's like if I just put in the names of the like, you know, if I just put in CH4, that's not that's not going to tell it what it needs to know. Right. And of course, this is very intuitive to many chemists, right? We say, well, the ionic radius is a really important feature. You know, xenon is not completely different. You know, there may be important differences, but even the periodic table encodes a, a pretty right. substantial. Right. Amount of- so, so where where there's already physical insight, like that, really matters in those models, as opposed to like a really naive model that you might just do if you didn't think about it at all. Right. You didn't have that physical background. Right. And at the end of the day, you're never going to get away from sort of fundamental. And this this is this will be my plug for theory. Um, you can get lost in this space very quickly and very easily, and there are a couple tenets. Right, that you think you can just learn anything from data. Yeah, just keep iterating, you'll find it eventually. There are certain things, you know, I think as computational sciences, you sort of understand through scaling issues. Right. If something scales quadratically, there, you know, there's certain things you're or exponentially, uh, just don't chase that route. Right. So you sort of that intuition is really important. And and one thing here that I think a lot of people light up is um, the effective dimensionality of your problem and the amount of data you have. Right. If the signal that you're trying to capture, the effective dimensionality is you know, say five to 10, you're going to need a thousand data points minimum, probably, right? And this is sort of the classic. Um, and so the best thing you can do, well, effective dimensionality, you can't fix that. That's just inherent. But if it's an apparently hundred dimensional problem, um, domain expertise is critical. You know, theory is one of the best compression algorithms out there, right? To take a, a apparently hundred dimensional problem and make it a 10 dimensional problem. And that, that's a lot of what Citrine's differentiation in the market is. You know, you go work with IBM Watson or some other group, uh, they're going to blink at you when you try and inject chemistry or physics-based domain knowledge. And of course, we have that's been first class from, from the get-go. So if I understand correctly, basically, you not only, uh, because I saw meme in the internet saying that machine learning is just another phase of statistics. So, in, but in your co- company, you like IBM Watson, they just use the statistics and then existing data only to find the pattern. But in your case, it seems like you are using physical principles for your predictions. Is that is it right? Yeah. So we have a couple of ways of incorporating domain expertise. Um, one of them is simply to say these. I believe these things are related. Um, in in large data sets, actually, you can get a lot of lift out of saying, you know, I know that ductility and hardness are related. Um, these things are correlated otherwise. So that's one. Another one is, you know, we have simulations that can give you a good starting point. One of my favorite use cases for machine learning is to learn error functions or loss bar, right? You know there's an approximation made in the theory. Uh, quantitatively, what is in practice that truncation term? Well, you can learn that from data. And in fact, those models are actually pretty good. So we have some, you know, one of our papers showing that you know, you can learn, you can cut the required training data by a factor of five to get equally accurate models um, if you start from DFT predictions, right? Density functional theory predictions on solids. Um, start from that as the guess and then use so ba- experimental data. Yeah, that's data. really interesting. Basically, you, you're sort of using simulations to prime the pump, so to speak, on, on the data, and then which were relatively cheap, but maybe not crazy accurate but then that helps you you know sort of with experiments to get to where you want to go oh that's really cool all right well well we're we're about out of time so we have a final question that we ask all of our guests and the question is sort of so you told us this wonderful story about your your past and and there's sort of the you know this problem of the forking paths or whatever so if you if you rewind it back and 
and you're going to, you're going into, into college. And I said, okay, not allowed to, uh, uh, go down the chemical engineering path. And for you, I'm also going to cross off computer science because <laughs> you're, you know, I'm going to say, you're not allowed to take those two paths. So what would you pick? Like if you had to pick today, you had to go back and do it. What would you, what would you do now? Hmm. I would probably go into electrical engineering. Is that still fair? Is that, what's the I think radius? That, I think you're okay. Yeah, blast radius. I think you're okay with that. That's that's different than the ones we picked. So electrical engineering, all But there it. are people who study computer science while majoring in electrical engineering. That's not allowed. He's going to disallow <laughs> it. Okay. Well, tell me, I'm interested to know why. Why, why would you pick electrical engineering? Let's hear, let's hear him out. Um, the, so I the hardware space? I think it's fascinating. Uh, so the robotics okay, okay. and hardware space is really fascinating. There's really a duel in the industry right now between the, the deep software guys uh, and this search and optimization problem, right? This sort of truncated search is, you know, that pattern, you'll see it everywhere once you're sensitized to it. Um, the other side of that is actuation and control um, in, in, in the actual um, machines. And it's actually a really beautiful uh, set of pro engineering problems. That's a really lovely space. It's something that is accessible that you can do as a hobbyist um, that only makes you more sensitized to how beautiful it is uh, when you're able to put these things in production and and, um, and design a functional either robot or, or, you know, robot in the abstract, right? These these automated systems. CNC milling right. is a, you know, simple example of this. Uh, simple example. That's um, really <laughs> impactful, I think. So I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, I think that's great because that's, that's perfect. Okay. Well, we want to thank uh, uh, Sean for coming today. So our guest today has been Dr. Sean Paradiso from uh, Citrine Informatics. Um, we really appreciate it. I've had a blast uh, talking about this. I hope we haven't Me too. lost every one of our uh, our listeners, but I think it was really uh, a fun one. So um, you can find more about Sean and his work. We'll, we'll put it up in the show notes. We'll put a link to him, maybe his LinkedIn profile too, so you can connect with him if you're interested. Um, and uh, this episode will go up on anchor.fm slash house science. So thanks. Thanks so much, Sean. Absolutely. Thanks, Thank Jeff. Thank you for listening to this episode of How Science Happens with your hosts, Wally Paxton, DJ So, and Doug Tree. For more information about the podcast, the hosts, or our guests, please visit our website at bit.ly slash howscience. For additional comments or questions, we can be reached by email at howscience at byu.edu.